Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. 35 years after its initial release, the punk snarl of London Calling feels as ferocious as ever. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Today we'll offer a classic album dissection of London Calling by The Clash. Then we're going to stick around the UK to review new albums by British electronic duo Disclosure and Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, Greg, we are going to review the first solo album by Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards in 23 years. (laughs) I had to look this up because I never believe it when I see it. On December 18th, Keith turns 72 years old. He's amazing. He will never die. That's going to be later on in the show, but first, Jim, we've got some music news. It is my desire that this spirit continue to develop and grow so that as many young people as possible can inherit and dwell in a land which has inspired so many people to dream. God bless America. That is Pope Francis addressing Congress on his recent visit to the United States, and I think we can all agree, Jim, that Pope Francis is something of a rock star. Sold-out world tour. Exactly. If he were the Rolling Stones, this would have been his sold-out tour of the U.S., and now you can buy a souvenir from that tour, basically, at the digital merch booth. It's going to be available in November. The Pope has made a pop album. I can only describe it as progressive rock. If you were to take, say, yes and combine it with something like Yanni, oh, and people are going to get oh. uh, going to scream. But you know how Yanni uses those world beat cultural references in his yeah. music, all sort of uh, widescreen and let's touch every bass. There's a little bit of that in here. What the Pope has done, or what I should say his producer has done, is taken excerpts from the Pope's speeches and, and sacred hymns and woven this orchestral framework around them. Wake up. This Lord speaks of the responsibility which the Lord gives you. It is the duty to be vigilant, not to allow the pressures, the temptations, and the sins of the ourselves or daughter to dull our sensibility 
to the beauty of holiness. Very progressive so, rock, as as I said. Something like Yes is Fragile comes so, to mind so, when I'm listening to this. You know? now, now, I've read a lot about Pope Francis. He was a bouncer at a club before he became a priest, but it's not like he actually was in the studio laying down some tasty licks. No, I mean, they basically hand over the job to this uh, producer and artistic director named Don Giulio Neroni. He's worked with other popes, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, put out albums for them. Pope Francis is all about speaking the people's language. I mean, he speaks in Italian, English, Spanish, Portuguese on this record. Let's reach this audience through any means possible. Let's make a pop album. I think that's the agenda here. Neroni, the artistic director of the record, says, I tried to be strongly faithful to the pastoral and personality of Pope Francis, the Pope of Dialogue, Open Doors, Hospitality. Greg, I dare say there's not a parent of any daughter in America of a certain age who doesn't know that song. The opening track to Taylor Swift's record-breaking 1989 album, Welcome to New York. Taylor Swift is now on top of the Billboard Pop Albums charts for her 48th week. Amazing. She's uh, up at number five, but one step ahead of her is this fellow, Ryan Adams, who has released a track, four-track cover of 1989 and gotten a ridiculous amount of attention. I've never been a huge fan. He had this concept. He claims to be a Taylor Swift fan. He's covered the whole album. He would no way be on top of the charts the way he is if he had put out his own music as his 15th album, but this is getting him a lot of attention, a big publicity boost. I think it's all a stunt. I mean, hearing Taylor Swift rendered in the cheap copy style of Bruce Springsteen, Wilco, or The Replacements is no great trick. And in fact, some feminist critics, I read a great essay in The New Statesman by Anna Leskowitz, is saying this is mansplaining, as if in order to make the case that Taylor Swift writes good songs, you have to do it in the alt-country vein rather than the pop mode in which she works. I would agree. I think uh, Ryan Adams is a great marketer. <laughs> I, I have I have very little use for his music, and it, it, it strikes me as how irrelevant his music has been for at least 15 years since the first couple of records, which were very well received. This is a canny way of reinserting himself into the pop culture dialogue, riding the coattails of the biggest pop star on the planet. So, yes, hats off to Mr. Adams for a great marketing move. All right, but decide for yourself. Here's a little bit of Ryan Adams playing uh, his version of Welcome to New York on Sound Opinions. And tell us what you think. Give us a call on the hotline, 888-859-1800. Welcome to the crowd, the village is a glow. Kaleidoscope allowed, hot beats on the coast. Everybody here wanting something more, searching for a sound. Dance to be 
You're listening to Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the title track to The Clash's third album, London Calling, an incredible double album epic when it came out, Greg. From time to time, we like to offer a classic album dissection of a record that's highly regarded. We both have to love it. We try to take people through it, how it was made, why it stands up, its lasting legacy, along with Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones and I think Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. London Calling is definitely a contender for the greatest double album of all time. came out a little over 35 years ago at the very end of 1979 in the UK, the beginning of 1980 in the US. So we thought this was a great opportunity to take another look at London Calling. Indeed. And let's give a little history about how we got to that spot where The Clash made this amazing record. The band had been signed to a CBS huge record company at the dawn of the punk era. Had the Sex Pistols making waves, the Clash formed soon after. They were kind of a hybrid band. Mick Jones and Paul Simonon, the guitar player and bass player, had been playing together. But they really didn't have chemistry in terms of getting a proper lead vocalist. That's when they hired Joe Strummer, who was a little older than the other band members in the Clash. He'd been bumming around the London scene in a band called the 101ers, playing a style of music called pub rock, which was basically referencing older styles of American music, primarily rockabilly, updating it for a new audience. Punk was in the air, and they formed this new band called The Clash, based on Simonon's reading a newspaper one day and seeing the word Clash in numerous headlines, saying, hey, it's perfect for what we're trying to do. Talk about what's going on in England today to a new audience. The Clash signed a big deal, but there was still a lot of skepticism about the staying power of punk rock. So when CBS signed the band, they didn't even release their debut album, the self-titled 1977 debut, in the U.S. They were waiting to see, is this phenomenon really going to have any staying power? Yeah, meanwhile, people were desperate to get that record. It's an unbelievably wonderful record. I think every bit as good as the Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bullocks, or the first four Ramones albums. You couldn't even buy the U.S. copy. You had to get it on import, yeah. or you, you had a much-coveted tape of it, you know, cassette tape from a friend's copy, and it stands up. Everyone I knew had it, Jim. It became the best-selling import record in history at that point. So CBS thought, hey, maybe we got something here. So they really geared up for that second record, and they hired a big-time producer, Sandy Perlman, who had worked with Blue Oyster Cult, among others, to produce. So they brought him to the States. They recorded this record in 1978 called Give Him Enough Rope. 
Again, not a huge commercial success. A lot of great songs on that record. Terrific record by any measure, but not the record that was going to break this band in the States. So there was a lot of pressure on The Clash with their third record to prove to its record company that they really had something here, that there was a band that was going to not only have a lot of critical credibility, but was also going to sell a lot of records. The Clash were an interesting place, too. They had this Fengali-type manager named Bernie Rhodes, who was constantly plotting behind the scenes, and there was all sorts of rumors about The Clash breaking up, you know, telling Mick Jones or Joe Strummer, hey, you know, you're the real star in this band. You really should break away from this guy. Well, Rhodes, by that time, was out of the picture. And it was actually a breath of fresh air for the band because, once again, it was just the four of them. Joe Strummer on vocals, Mick Jones on guitar and vocals, Paul Simon on bass, and Topper Heaton on drums. Topper Heaton, by the way, was kind of the secret weapon of this group. He came in later on after a series of drummers and was really one of the most musical members of the band, could play many instruments, was a terrific drummer. And so the setting was right to make a masterpiece. The band was, it was just the four of them. They got together and started doing a rehearsal sessions and demo sessions in this garage in a godforsaken spot in London called Vanilla, that they dubbed Vanilla, and uh, ended up creating the blueprint for what was to be London Calling that would come out later in that year of 1979. <laughs> They didn't have any material, Greg, when they retired to Vanilla in uh, in Pimlico in London. They just started jamming. And they started playing the songs that they grew up loving and listening to, the stuff they were obsessed with. They did Bo Diddley covers. Mm-hmm. They did Dylan covers. They did whatever was was laying around that they always wanted to play, and then they started to write some songs. Mick Jones wrote most of the music, and Joe Strummer wrote most of the lyrics, although they would complete each other's songs. At this point, it was a real Lennon and McCartney partnership. Yeah. They made each other better. It's in the gleaming corridor on the 51st floor. The money can be made if you really want some more. Executive decision made with critical precision. Matching wall and clothes for a silicone nose. Cooker's life to the advertising world. Cooker's life to the party girl. Cooker's life where there isn't any. Cooker's life. A few short years after this, Strummer would fire Jones from the band, mm-hmm. and Heaton would fall out of the group with drug problems. They would basically fall apart. But at this point, it was four brothers against the world. The original working title of the album was The Last Testament. Yeah. And they meant that in a couple of ways. They figured, we're going to get to make one more record. We're not going to get another shot if this one doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. first one barely came out in the United States. You know, the first album came out second after the second album, which was a disappointment, give them enough rope. This is going to be it for us. But also... Punk has exploded. Where does punk go next? What is there left to do? 
it seems naive now, but there was this thought that like real revolution could be affected by a rock and roll band. <laughs> that same idealistic notion that we saw in the 60s, of course. Of course, the Clash were just a band. They were making music. They weren't going to overthrow Margaret Thatcher in the UK and the, the ascendant forces of the right and Ronald Reagan in the US. They weren't going to really affect political change and bring socialized medicine and equitable work rules to the universe. They were just going to make good rock and roll and inspire people, maybe. Where did they fit in the middle of all this? Punk was devolving into what Strummer and Jones described as like the punk police. You want to put reggae in your soul? You can't do that. That's yeah. not punk. There are you, rules. You, you know? want to bring R&B into your soul? You can't <laughs> do that. That's not punk. In the midst of all this, these guys begin to write two albums worth of material. And they're sticking to their values. They say to CBS, we're going to put out a double record, but it's going to be the price of a single record. Mm-hmm. We won't abide by charging our fans more. How revolutionary is that in 1979? The record company, as they as they shift into the recording studio from Vanilla, the rehearsal room, they go into Wessex Sound in London. The producer is a character, and we have to explain. Guy Stevens was like <laughs> one of these guys on the fringes of the mod movement. He'd hung out with The Who and The Small Faces and that whole explosion of sound. He'd gone on to produce Mott the Hoople. He was, by all accounts, certifiably insane. His idea was, I want to get the maximum amount of emotion out of you guys as you're performing the songs, as you're recording. He didn't much care about the subtleties of sound. His favorite techniques for inspiring the group were to throw chairs in the studio Mm -hmm. and to take a ladder and swing it around. (laughs) So The Clash is is doing basic tracking for these songs that have come together in the rehearsal room, and this guy is throwing chairs, swinging this ladder, they're ducking him and trying to play the songs that they've just written, and something magical happened by all accounts. We're going to continue our classic album dissection of London Calling by The Clash in just a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we'll review the new albums by British electronic duo Disclosure and rock outlaw Keith Richards.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis, and we're conducting a classic album dissection of London Calling by The Clash on the 35th anniversary of its U.S. release. This was the third release for this English rock band, and it marked a big leap forward for them. Greg, I think one of the reasons was the recording environment. In Wessex studio that summer in 1979, it was, of course, the four members of The Clash. Joe Strummer on rhythm guitar and vocals, Mick Jones on lead guitar and vocals, Paul Simonon on bass, and Nicky Topper Heaton on drums. They brought in Guy Stevens to produce, and he was unconventional to say the least. But he was paired with a truly skilled engineer, Bill Price. Now, in between the recording, they would go out in the back and play football, soccer. It was, by all accounts, blood on the walls soccer. They were knocking each other over. They were knocking teeth out. There was, there was full-on tackling, and they loved it most of all when CBS <laughs> would come by once a week, the executives from the record company, yeah. because if you're here in the studio, you've got to play soccer with us, right? Yeah. So they were knocking the heck out of these record executives, and then they'd go in and they'd record these songs. Again, it's called The Last Testament. This is going to be it. This is going to be everything we have to say. We're going to take all the music we love. R&B, reggae, punk rock, country and western even on the fringes of things. All these heroes we have musically, we're even going to put it on the cover. That cover image, when, when I bought this record when it came out, I didn't know mm-hmm. that that was the exact lettering and the color scheme from Elvis Presley's debut album. Yep. Elvis Presley holding the guitar up in that famous black and white photo. Right. The Clash's take on it was to take the same layout and the same color scheme. But Paul Simonon on stage at the Palladium in New York, destroying his bass, pounding his bass down into the ground. Right. Elvis Presley was the beginning. We are the Clash. We are going to be the end. <laughs> that was the statement of what would eventually be called London Calling. They said I love. You said okay. Don't wanna play the show. The hubris was definitely there. I mean, they definitely had a sense of historical context in this record. And the beauty of The Clash was that they didn't want to burn their elders in effigy. They adored Bo Diddley, and they respected Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry. They wanted to bring it all up to date, and, and it filtered into The Clash system. What was interesting about this record to me, Jim, you know, it had that sprawl in the mold of, of an exile on Main Street or a blonde on blonde. It allowed them to explore these areas of music that they had never explored before in a really profound way and at the same time to make it all sound like Clash music. Yeah. Uh, there was a couple of things I think that were interesting to me about those sessions that you were talking about. Guy Stevens sort of got things going, but, you know, his shtick sort of wore out after two or three weeks. I talked to Strummer a few times about it and said, you know, after a while when you're dodging one too many chairs it trying to play, old, yeah. and then Stevens would stop showing up because he was there for the initial inspiration but the guy who really finished the record as the de facto producer, even though he wasn't credited that way, was Mick Jones, a superb musician, really made this a much more layered record than it might have been had Stevens been left to his own devices. So the combination of Stevens's manic expression 
the studio, just this psychotic element. Bill Price's precision as an engineer, and then Jones's ability to arrange the music in these really beautiful and innovative ways made the record what it was. And then you had this great band, Strummer, an amazing lyricist, writing songs like Lost in the Supermarket. Mick Jones sings that song, and a lot of people assume that Jones wrote it. But in fact, it was Strummer writing the song for Jones. I'm all lost in the supermarket. I no longer shop happily. I came in here for a special A lot of people say there are no love songs on London Calling, and that's one of its great failings. And the one love song on there, Lover's Rock, is kind of a misfire. I disagree with that completely. Lost in the Supermarket is a love song. It is a love song from Joe Strummer to Mick Jones saying... I have empathy for the way you grew up in this lonely apartment with your grandmother, and music was was a lifeline for you. Hearing that noise was my first ever feeling. That's how it's been all around me. I'm all lost in the supermarket. I can no longer shop happily. I came in here for a special offer. The guaranteed personality. It was about those four guys expressing themselves in a way that they'd never been able to before because it was just the four of them alone in the studio with this engineer and this lunatic producer making the music of, the, of a lifetime. I think you're onto something there, Greg. All four members of The Clash really were able to shine in that environment. But Paul Simonon in particular, yeah. he really came forward as a bassist. People think, well, you know, they were punk, they were rough, they were raw, they were ragged. Certainly, look, you look at performance footage and The Clash were all about the explosion of energy, yep. not a lot of subtlety. However, by this point, Paul was so serious about becoming a great bass player, was obsessed with reggae, was listening to it all the time, that he learned how to play. Whether they're doing something like Rudy Can't Fail, which is classic reggae... I Or they're doing just an explosion of energy, uh, revolution rock. It's his bass that's driving things. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. The rhythm section on this record is extraordinary. They were so versatile. Simon had really picked up his game. Heaton was a great drummer already, but he finally got to play more than just that basic punk rhythm. But they were experimenting with jazz rhythms, funk rhythms, ska, reggae, as you mentioned. The horn section comes in, and they blow up some of the songs, really expand the palette. Absolutely. You're listening to our Sound Opinions classic album dissection of The Clash's 1979 double album, London Calling. Greg, one of the elements we haven't mentioned yet is Strummer's lyricism. There's a sort of 
end of the century vibe, end of the world vibe, everything is falling apart, that I think runs through all the lyrics, even the, the upbeat songs, things are bad, and they're getting worse, and the only thing we have to fight it is music. That's kind of Strummer's basic philosophy, no? Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, the fact that uh, Margaret Thatcher took over as a prime minister in England that year is not lost on the clash. They were socialists, outspokenly so, Strummer in particular. And the fact that they had just seen the world, it's important to note that they were, had seen the States for the first time, and they had gotten outside of that London scene and started to take more of a worldview about where England fit in with the rest of the world and the role that the United States was playing because they were recording for a U.S. record company mm-hmm. now. They had things to say about the state of the world in not sort of a preachy manner in this record. It's more elliptical and metaphorical, but it's very much there, starting with that cover image of Simonon crashing that bass mm-hmm. down on the floor. There is an anger here that's underlying everything, and at the same time a beauty as well. Jim, you and I each pick one song that stood out for us on London Calling, and for me, it's one that combines both those elements, the beauty and the violence, Spanish bombs. You know, here they are. Talk about getting outside of their world. You know, they're singing in broken Spanish. You know, it's a clashified version of Spanish that they're singing you have to in the it. chorus of this song, you, you know? Do, you do have to hand it to Joe, though, for trying to do the <laughs> The Castilian TH, you know, the th, th, I, I appreciate that. Exactly. And what he's singing in the chorus of this song, I love you and goodbye, I want you but oh my aching heart. And he's basically saying, we're dying here. He was talking about the Spanish Revolution of the late 30s, where the Francisco Franco regime was repressing the left wing and would remain a dictatorship for subsequent decades. This was his little song of solidarity for that left wing revolution that failed. And in some way, maybe saying, you know, someday in my country, we may need one of these to right the wrongs that have been committed. The chorus is wonderful. The rhythm is there. You can hear that Hayden Simonon rhythm section working overtime on this song. And then just the beauty and the wistfulness of that chorus, I think, really gets me every time. Spanish Bombs from The Clash, one of the great tracks from London Calling on Sound Opinions. Spanish songs in Andalusia The street inside in the days of 39 Oh, please leave the vendana open Federico
Spanish Bombs by The Clash from London Calling, one of Greg Cott's favorite songs from that album. I'm going to play one, too. So what epitomizes this album for me? That was the question. I had to go with Clampdown. I think that this is the finest statement in terms of being the most timeless of Strummer's worldview. In terms of there's no possibilities here for you. You're going to get this horrible job that you're going to hate. It's going to stamp out your soul. You're going to be working for the Clampdown. It starts with this verse, which is resonant of fascism. He's talking about the blue-eyed men are going to be turned into young believers, you Mm -hmm. know, like Hitler Youth. And this is what our whole society is set to do. This notion of, uh, I'm going to have to put on the brown and blue. I'm going to have to put on the suit and Mm -hmm. go to work. It's going to steal my soul. You start wearing the blue and brown and you're working for the clampdown. You got somebody to boss you around. It makes you feel big now. You know, they hate this. At the same time, musically, what a sophisticated song. Here is a three-minute explosion of energy, but it's got four distinct parts. It's got that whole kind of intro, which you could lop off and it wouldn't take anything away, but it's beautiful and it sets the stage for the song. You have these funky bridges. You have this killer lock-tight rhythm in the verses as Strummer's spitting out these words. Talk about the rhythm section. This is as good, I think, as Led Zeppelin at its best. Yeah. It's like all the fat of what Led Zeppelin could do, pared down to just the absolute ferocity of Bonham's drums and uh, John Paul Jones's bass. Simonon and Heaton are that good. Brilliant musically, brilliant lyrically. My favorite track on the album, Clamp Down by The Clash on Sound Opinions. Train 
That's Clamp Down by The Clash, my favorite track from London Calling, one of the greatest albums in rock history and worthy of a Sound Opinions classic album dissection, I think. We'd like to hear from you. What are your memories of The Clash, and why do you think London Calling remains such a masterpiece? Comments on that or anything in the music world are welcome at 888-859-1800. When Greg and I come back, we'll weigh in on a brand new solo effort from Keith Richards, his first in 23 years. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called Holding On from the new Disclosure album, Caracal. Disclosure is a UK duo, brother duo, Howard and Guy Lawrence, that came out of that UK dubstep garage disco scene of the last five to ten years that has been dominating that country's club music. These guys are a couple of musicians, actually. They basically play their own instruments, but were heavily influenced by that club culture and came out with an album in 2013 called Settle, which really set a new bar for the EDM music scene. Very song-oriented release, and also the big debut of singer Sam Smith, who sang the lead vocal on that crossover hit, Latch. It went from a sort of a clubby, audience to a mainstream pop audience and disclosure became one of the biggest acts on the edm scene the edm scene you know six billion dollar a year industry now and these guys are sort of being looked at as the guiding lights they're going to push it forward into the new generation of listeners for that particular style of music because they are writing more song-oriented pop-leaning material. A lot of expectation as a result for this new album, Caracal. It just came out. We're going to review it in a second, but we're going to play a track from it. It's heavily laden with guest stars. Uh, This particular track features Lord on the lead vocals. It's called Magnets from Disclosure on Sound Opinions. Never really felt bad about it As we drank deep from the light 
Cause I felt melting magnets, babe The second I saw you through half-shut eyes Smoking sunset off Mulholland He was talking, I was wondering about you and that girl She your girlfriend, face from heaven Bet the world she don't know Pretty girls don't know the things that I know Walk my way, I'll share the things that she won't Magnets by Disclosure with Lord guesting on lead vocals. The album is called Caracal, which Greg, you looked it up. It's a it's a what kind of cat with a long tail? It's a it's an African. It's about a three foot cat with a with a long tail. It's a wild animal, and uh, <laughs> they apparently like the nocturnal possibilities. There. Okay, all right. So a nocturnal cat. You know, um, I spent a lot of time with this album because Settle did have such a huge impact on the EDM scene. To my ears, Settle had a lot more dubstep energy. It was a lot more upbeat, and it also had deeper roots in house music. Overall, Caracal, Cat Reference or No, is a much more superficial album. It's slower. It's more typical R&B, slow jam kind of pop songs. It's less energetic, less inventive than what these brothers are capable of, and it succeeds or fails based on how much you like the guest star. I got no problem with Miguel. I I like the track he's on. I love Lord. I like the track she's on. I don't get Sam Smith, all right? And Weekend, I can take or leave. But it's so hit and miss, this album. I think it's a big letdown after the up-and-coming excitement of them circa Settle 2013. It's a trash record as far as I'm concerned. Well, Jim, I I think it is a letdown for me as well. I think it's so heavily laden with guest stars uh, that that sort of distracts from what these guys are about. Sam Smith was an unknown on Settle. Most of the singers on that particular record, the guest singers, were unknowns as well. A lot of the emphasis was about what these two guys, Howard and Guy Lawrence, could do in the studio. This is much more of a song-oriented record. It leans much more heavily towards the vocalists. There's a lot of attention being paid. Look, boy, what a budget. They've got a bigger budget, right? they got The weekend. they got Gregory Porter, who is a terrific uh, jazz soul singer, I think does the best track on, on, on the record in that holding on track. And 
point of comparison. The work that all of these artists have done on their own is better than any of the tracks that they're doing on this particular record. So you're saying, yeah. well, it's a good Lord track, but it's not the best Lord track. And it's a nice weekend track, but it's not the best work that Weekend has done. And I would say that um, Guy and Howard Lawrence of Disclosure, they did their best work collaborating with Mary J. Blige on that London Sessions album last year. Mm. I think it's a, it's a failure all around, and I agree with the Trash It rating. that croak that of course is keith richards with a tune called cross-eyed heart it's the title track of the third solo album he has given us only been three greg between 1988 and today uh the last one was main offender in 1992 i mean you know keith richards you know the great marauding pirate outlaw of rock and roll even you know your your young kids know him because Johnny Depp was doing him in the Pirates of the Caribbean yeah, right. movies, right? There's probably not a, anybody on the face of planet Earth, and maybe even Mars now that it has water, who doesn't know who Keith Richards, the longtime Rolling Stones guitarist, is. As I said earlier in the show, going to turn 72 in December. He's working with the band he usually calls the Expensive Winos when he does a solo project. Waddy Wachtel on lead guitar, the great Ivan Neville on keyboards, Steve Jordan on drums. Uh, Jordan wrote uh, most of the originals with him. There's also, of course, a reggae cover and some blues nods. Last appearances of Bobby Keys on saxophone. The longtime Rolling Stones sideman passed away last year. Nora Jones duets with him on a song. What else needs to be said? It's Keith, right? Let's play a track. This is uh, Keith's version of the classic Goodnight Irene from Cross-Eyed Heart on Sound Opinions. Well, I Good night, Irene. Sometimes I take that great emotion 
to jump in the river and drown. Good night, Irene, from Keith Richards, the new solo album, Cross-Eyed Heart. Jim, I like this record a lot when Keith gets personal. There's a couple of tracks on there that have some uh, references to Keith's uh, life, uh, Robbed Blind, notably. I love that line about the cops. I can't involve them. God knows what they would find. Uh, he's, you know, the, the guy has had a little bit of an issue with authority figures over the, over the decades, and that's a nice little uh, comical reference to those conflicts. Amnesia is a more serious track uh, in that I think it talks a little bit about the aftermath of him falling out of that tree on a <laughs> yeah. tropical island. I mean, he jokes about it, yeah. but on this, on this particular track, Amnesia, the whole notion of, of having brain surgery, it's, I mean, that's serious stuff, obviously. And he talks about the fact that he felt like he was nowhere for a good period of his life, and that's the perhaps the most honest and vulnerable I've heard him in a long time. The rest of the record, to me, as good as it is, and I love Keith's sound, I love the fact that he doesn't overthink stuff, it has almost a demo-like feel, it doesn't feel overproduced, is that it's sort of paint-by-numbers Keith. You know, you've got the blues, acoustic blues thing, and you've got the reggae track, and then you've got a kind of middling Stones rockers. I mean, Keith riffs, okay, He he writes great riffs, but I've heard a million sort of middling Keith riffs on the Stones albums from the last two decades, and it's it's not Jumpin' Jack Flash, let me tell you. You know, we're not we're not at that standard here. So it's a nice Keith Richards record, a holding action until the next Stones record, which I guess is finally going to be made next year. But meanwhile, nothing great. It's a try-it record. Yeah, you're being kind. I'm going to run the risk of having my official Rock Critic membership card revoked and say, this this record, there's no reason for anyone to own this record. If you just heard him croaking his way through Goodnight Irene and you said, I'm excited to hear a whole album this good, <laughs> then, then I cannot relate to you. Now, mind you, I say this as a Rolling Stones fan. Us, you and me, we wrote a book about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, right? I got three songs to mention. Happy? Before They Make Me Run, and You Got the Silver. Mm. Is there anything one one-hundredth as good as any of those signature Keith tracks no. from the past? No, there's nothing. The Rolling Stones, solo and together, have now been thoroughly mediocre and letting us down three times longer than they were good. <laughs> now, when they were great, when they were good, early 60s through 1978, they were the best band in the universe, all right? But this is a long time, and this is not the comeback. This is a trash it record. What do we got on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an interview with Spooner Oldham, one of the great behind-the-scenes keyboardists in rock history. Sound Opinions, as always, has been produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, 
Alex Claiborne, and we have a new intern, Libby Gormley. If you've listened to this show for 10 years, you have also heard us week in, week out. Thank Jason Saldana. He's going to keep a hand in in some ways with the show, but he is officially leaving our day-to-day production staff. We would not have been here without him. And it is only reluctantly that we're unchaining him from <laughs> behind his desk. You know, I don't... Well, you got the key? <laughs> yeah. Every sin sound opinions everyone's a critic so now it's time to hear what you have to say this here is the place where i will be staying there isn't a number you can call the paper let it ring a long 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 time new messages hey greg and jim this is chris from north carolina just finished listening to the Alice Cooper interview and loved it. Like you, I'm always impressed by how much of a thoughtful guy he is. I love that you started playing No Mr. Nice Guy behind his discussion of you know Keith Richards because it begins such a typically Rolling Stones kind of lick that Alice employs in a really, really nice fashion. Great work. Thanks again. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Alessandra calling from Brooklyn. I just listened to your latest episode where you guys were talking about the hologram innovation, and I thought it would be pretty cool if they could get a hologram of young Mick Jagger up on stage with now Mick Jagger and they could challenge each other to a dance-off. I think the Stones have certainly the money to do that and probably no artistic qualms against it. So it could be pretty cool. Thanks a lot, guys. Hi, Sound Opinions. This is Ian calling from Evanston. I wanted to thank you for mentioning the anniversary of the Parents' Music Resource Council. That was a great thing, but you missed the opportunity to play a great little song called We Love You, Tipper Gore by Furnace Face from about 1991 or 92. They were a power pop band in the 80s. You only take a second, it would take me an eternity. I'd find it kind of hard to decide what someone else should hear and see, but you fill me with awe at how quickly you decide. I should be exposed to and what I should be able to buy. 
It's a great song. It includes in the middle some suggestions of words that Tipper Gore might like to censor. So it's pretty fun. All right, thanks a lot. Bye. Hey, guys, this is Ethan Zuckerman from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. I just want to let you know that I really appreciated The Wire show, and especially the review of the new Lowe album. You guys point out that Lowe and Yola Tango are both based around the configuration of a husband, a wife, and a bass player. And I wanted to call out another favorite band, The Innocence Mission, which has the same configuration. And I wanted to ask whether there's something about this particular structure of husband, wife, and a bass player that leads to powerful and moving songwriting. Anyway, I always enjoy the show. Thanks so much. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.